0: Welcome into the EP podcast. It is Monday, April 20th, 2020, and it is a military Monday and fast and quickly military Monday has become my absolute favorite day of the week, especially here on the podcast, because I get to share with you some of the most amazing, incredible people who are keeping this world and our country safe and free, and their families and everyone involved. And I'm so excited for today's episode, episode two of A Military Monday. And I've got uh, a a very incredibly special guest, Jenny Taylor, will be on the show uh, in segment two to talk about uh, the life and legacy of her husband, Brent Taylor, Major Brent Taylor, who was the mayor of North Ogden. And we'll talk a little bit about him and his life and how she and her family are carrying on that legacy. And I got to tell you, they are inspiring, uh, motivating people. They are incredible. And I'm so excited to share her thoughts with you uh, coming up uh, later in the podcast. Get your pens and pencils, your pads of paper, your iPhones, whatever you got, get them ready because you're going to want to take notes. Uh, Jenny will make you feel like you can do anything. So get ready to take notes. It'll be fun. All right. Uh, also, it being the first day of the week, we got a lot to talk about ahead of us this week, including the NFL draft. A lot of local things being uh, done and talked about. A lot of movement in the NFL. And will this NFL draft actually take place as planned? Will it, How will it go down? John Clayton was on with DJ and PK late last week, and he had a thought about uh, the technical side of things with this NFL Draft. And we'll uh, talk about that in just a moment. But of course, we've got to start today with the Last Dance documentary. If you're an NBA fan, if you're a jazz fan, if you're a Bulls fan, if you're a Michael Jordan fan, or if you're simply a human being who was alive on the face of the planet between 1980 and 1999, you were a part of the Michael Jordan Playing days phenomena. Uh, The the greatest to ever do it in terms of commercializing a brand. Absolutely. No one was better and and still might not. No one one still might not be better than Michael Jordan. Was he the greatest basketball player of all time? Hard to argue it. Really, really, really tough to argue it. I tend to lean more towards LeBron James, and it comes down to a couple things. Uh, I feel like LeBron has done more with less. I feel like uh, LeBron James, if they played one-on-one, has the physicality to defeat Michael Jordan. And I feel like uh, LeBron James has the more finesse than Michael Jordan. Now, where Michael Jordan could get LeBron is in toughness. And are we playing with 1990s rules or are we playing with the 2000s rules that's where it would get interesting. But let's be real. You could argue Kobe Bryant. You could argue Wilt Chamberlain. You could argue Oscar Robertson. You could argue uh, Hakeem uh, Halajwan. You could argue Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You could argue and argue and argue Larry Bird. Whoever. you Matt Magic Johnson. Uh, you can argue forever who you think is the greatest to ever do it. I think it comes down to uh, Michael Jordan or LeBron. And if you go with Michael Jordan, I don't blame you or think you're absolutely dead wrong. He He was incredible. So, but, (laughs) as much as he changed the world of marketing, not just in the NBA, but across the board for athletes, as much as his brand became this household name and still to this day is the number one selling shoe every day in the world, the limited edition already sold out after this documentary was released, he was and is uh, a... A facade? Is that too harsh of a way to say it? He's not a good, nice person. And I talked in depth about that last week on one of the episodes of the EP podcast. Uh and that coupled with so I was I'm afraid that it's gonna he's gonna be built back up into this hero type person like he always was in the nineties. That coupled with I'll be real honest with you here on the EP podcast. I Austin Horton was a diehard and still am a big jazz fan. I, I cheer for the jazz. I love the jazz. I lived, breathed, and, and ate the the Utah jazz as a child. Uh, everything I drew and doodled in class was a jazz logo or, or, or jazz-related of some kind. Uh, everything I, I pretended to be on the playground was a John Stockton or Carl Malone or Jeff Hornacek or Brian Russell. Everything that I... Played on video games. I was always the Utah Jazz. I, my room was covered in jazz. Everything was Utah Jazz. And th- those two back-to-back years where they lost to the Chicago Bulls in the NBA Finals, still to this day, sting. And I know there's a lot of jazz fans out there that feel the same. And I, I shared this sentiment on Twitter on Sunday night uh, when I was really debating if I was going to be able to watch this documentary or not. And it came down to the feeling that I have is we all have that one big, hopefully just one, but we all have one that we can point to, one big heartbreak, one heartache that we're grateful for all the memories and stories and experiences that came about from having that happen in our life. But it ended so sadly that we still feel the sting years and years later from that first big heartache. And we don't, as much as we appreciate that it happened, and we're grateful for the memories that we uh, got because of the that happened. We don't necessarily want to go back and relive it. If if there was a movie of those moments, would we sit down and watch it? I'll tell you right now, I, I'm not, I'm not going to watch it. I don't need to relive. I'm grateful for the fun and the good and the, even the, the sad and bad that came out of the end of it. I don't want to relive it. And it's the same with this 1997-98 NBA season that, where the Jazz lost to the Bulls with... The push-off shot. And Dick Bavetta allowing a Ron Harper shot and disallowing a Howard Isley shot. Howard Isley's was before the shot clock, disallowed. Ron Harper's was after the shot clock, allowed. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the push-off. It was tough. And it still is. And you can tell I'm bitter. and And I don't think you tell me I can't. I shouldn't be. So it's just tough. Because I also work in the sports industry. And there's... Breaking news, not a lot of sports to talk about and break down and bring up right now. And this is the number one watched thing in the world. Tiger King, move aside, it's like you never even happened. And we don't yet have the exact numbers of how many people watched that thing Sunday night, the, the first two episodes. I'm betting it was the most watched thing in a long, 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 long time. Maybe since the Super Bowl. Everybody was watching that. Last night it seemed so. Uh, I, I I said on Twitter I was really trying to not watch it. I wanted to watch it. I didn't feel like I could. I got through the first episode, and there was a moment in the first episode where they showed just a snippet of the end of the uh, of the uh, NBA finals the year previously when the Bulls won their fifth uh, over the Utah Jazz in ninety six ninety seven, and that hurt. They hadn't shown yet the 97, 98 stuff, and they will. But it's going to hurt, and and, and I'm going to try to find a way through it. I watched the first episode. I got halfway through the second episode, and then uh, I fell asleep. It was way too late, and I haven't finished it yet. And I don't know if I will. I'm sure I will. I just don't know when. But my initial takeaway from one and a half episodes, this is building up. This is not the first couple episodes is... Not is not the meat of the whole thing. It is a lot of backstory. It is a lot of setup for hopefully what will be a better delivery in episodes three through 10. Uh And I'm sure it will be. It's just, it's incredible drama. It's incredible uh, poetry is what it is, that, that NBA season and that career of Michael Jordan. But they really, really, really were unfair to Jerry Krause. And I don't know Jerry Krause. I don't know the Krause family. I just know simply that he could not have been as bad of a guy as the players and coaches seem to fit, think he was. Did he have an, a, an attitude and an ego? Probably. Was he always, always uh, uh, in the right or probably not? Was he always in the wrong? Probably not. But this documentary made it out to seem like he was a buffoon. And uh, the only guy that stood up for him was Jerry Reinsdorf. And even when he stood up for him, it was kind of like a backhanded stand up for him. He's like, well, I always thought he was a nice guy, but, you know, it was bad. And just because the man has sadly passed away does not mean that you don't get someone from his side of the story to tell where he's coming from. It, it, that is bad journalism. It might be great TV, but it's bad journalism. If you're making a documentary, that's not a fair way to do it. Now there's eight, let's see, uh, yeah, eight more episodes to go, so maybe they'll uh, figure out a way to, maybe that will come around. Maybe they'll have his side of things told by from someone somehow. But as of one and a half episodes in, they really were unfair to Jerry Reinsdorf just simply by not letting his side be represented. Is that unfair of me? Because the man has passed away? To expect for the that side of the story to be told? Maybe. But there's got to be somebody who knows something more than just getting the other side of the thing from Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and, and Scottie Pippen and on and on and on and on and on. Scotty Pippen was vastly underpaid Scotty Pippen also signed a contract he maybe should not have signed. It was interesting and fascinating for me to see Scotty Pippen's background cuz I I had no idea how much uh, how many kids were in his family, what kind of uh, poor background he came from and his father having a stroke and his older brother being in a wheelchair as well and everyone relying on Scotty and his basketball career to keep things going. Seems to me like I uh, I should have really had more respect for Scotty Pippen the man while he was playing basketball than I did. And I'm grateful for for at least that part of what has been shown so far in this documentary. Uh, But it is fun to see these little things called uh, hashtag side notes the Utah Jazz are sending out on social media to, to correspond with the Last Dance documentary to try and tell the Utah Jazz side of things. And I was grateful for that. And here's Brian Russell did a little sit down with the Utah Jazz And they sent this side note out on social media during episode one of The Last Dance.
1: I'll say this. That was the greatest no call in the history of basketball. How about that? My momentum was going that way, but I was faster than MJ. And I was taller than MJ. I gave him fits. So he did something that I never thought he would do. Because I had Gordon Chiesa. Break down nothing but the fourth quarter. Just so I could know what Mike did. I knew he wanted to get to the free throw line. Here comes that little (laughs) pan. I said, uh, my brakes just gave out. (laughs) I was like, okay, it was Mike. It was Mike. That was the greatest no call in the history of basketball.
0: Yeah, thank you, B-Russ. The greatest no call in NBA history. And there were three in that one game. That could have changed the ste- That the, 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 could have stemmed the tides of NBA history. Michael Jordan should only have five NBA titles, maybe? Huh? Huh? Maybe? Possibly? We'll never know. But we do know that Game Six was not fair. They missed three calls, all going against the Jazz. They they missed the Ron Harper call, they missed the Howard Eisley call, and they missed the push off call. And I'll go to my grave being bitter about it. I'm sorry, but not sorry. Uh, So just grateful that Brian Russell... And every time Brian Russell's asked about this, he has a pretty good attitude and sense of humor about it while still saying, yeah, he feels like he got jobbed. And Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech where he went after uh, Brian Russell, get out of here with that. What are you doing, Michael Jordan? Stop it. But that's MJ. That's who he was, is, and always will be. And hopefully this documentary as it carries forward will show more of that raw, ugly side of Michael Jordan that should be told. I want the truth out there. I want people to know you can respect and love Michael Jordan as the greatest basketball player of all time. Do not make him a role model. Don't. Don't do it. In fact, you could probably count on uh, two hands the number of NBA guys you could ever really, truly consider a role model or professional athletes. Because there is this belief that you have to have some of that ugliness, that killer mentality to get to the top. And you probably do. I'd rather not be at the top. I'd rather be near the top and still be a good person than be at the top and be an absolute jerk. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting now. So episode one and half of two was pretty dang good. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to find the gumption and the guts to finish it out because it was good. It was good TV. It was well done. I do wish they had shown more, uh, given more uh, due justice to the Jerry Krause side of the story, yet to be determined if they will or not. All right, that's it for uh, the first topic of the day, and that's going to be it for the sports side of things today. Being a Military Monday, I want to give as much time as is necessary to give a proper tribute and moment to Major Brent Taylor and his wife and kids, Jenny Taylor, who is my guest coming up next in segment two. Major Brent Taylor... Born July 6, 1979, killed in action November 3rd, 2018 in Kabul, Afghanistan, was the mayor of North Ogden, Utah, married to Jenny Ashworth Taylor, seven kids that he left behind with Jenny. and uh, of course uh, he was uh, this was his fourth deployment as he was in the military. He was uh, you know in the National Guard. he went to BYU, went to U- University of Utah, served a mission. the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints i believe was an eagle scout had an incredible uh life and was taken from us way 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 too soon and while i don't share a lot of my political views i will share this brent taylor and i may or may not have been of the same party but brent taylor would always have gotten my vote no matter what ticket he'd be running on and uh after visiting with Jenny. Uh, Jenny Taylor recently, if she ever decides to throw her hat in the ring, she's got my vote 100% of the time. And if her kids, they've got my vote. These are special, special people that this country is built on the backs of and continues to be carried on the backs of. And uh, we need people like this in positions of power so that they will truly speak for the people. And that's what Brent Taylor always did. Whether he was uh, fulfilling one of his three, uh, any of his three uh, goals, be it for God, country, or family, he was always thinking of other people and doing what he felt was best for the collective good. And uh, I wanted to make sure we gave Jenny a lot of time to share her thoughts and feelings on Brent uh, and uh, let us hear uh, what's going on with the Taylor family. And coming up next, you will not be disappointed. Once again, grab your notepads you're going to want to take some notes because Jenny Taylor drops some incredible motivating and inspiring n- uh, nuggets throughout this next interview that changed the way I look at life. And I think it will for, do the same for you. So coming up next, Military Monday with Jenny Taylor. Mm-hmm. It is a Military Monday, and I am just absolutely uh, beyond words honored and amazed that I get to have Jenny Taylor as my guest this week uh, as Military Monday rolls along here on the EP podcast. You know Jenny's husband's story well, I'm sure. Mayor Brent Taylor, uh, mayor of North Ogden, who was also in the military and uh, served many deployments uh, while he was uh, mayor of North Ogden. And he paid the ultimate sacrifice and gave his life on his, uh, I believe, his fourth and final deployment. And it's my honor and absolute uh, privilege to have Jenny join us here on the EP podcast uh, for Military Monday. And I have so many questions, comments, uh, uh, thank yous to give her and her family, but I don't want to waste too much of their time. I know it's busy times uh, right now at the Taylor Home, so let's uh, go ahead and get started here. And you're going to have to remind me the exact name of your title now, citizen something or other. Yeah,
2: civilian uh, aid, civilian aid to the secretary of the
0: army. No big, no big deal. Yeah. No big deal. Jeez, <laughs> only the civilian uh, aid to the secretary of the army. Unbelievable. Yep. What it's is kind of what is casa, if I can call it that? So it's.
2: If- it's kind of like a direct link in each state um, between the local military and then the Secretary of the Army back in the Pentagon. Okay. So for Utah, we just have one. We're kind of smaller in terms of big army. But if you were maybe in you know North Carolina, they've got a giant Fort Bragg, or New York has Fort Drum. They might have a CASA specifically assigned to that area where the base is, and then another one for another part. Texas has several. California has several. Uh, We in Utah have one, so that's it. It's me. And my job is to kind of be a go-between between between the Pentagon, the Secretary of the Army, and then the Army world here in Utah. So the Army world in Utah is Dugway, it's Tooele, it's the Army Reserves, it's the Army National Guard, it's anyone from Utah who joins the Army and ends up stationed anywhere else. So it's kind of big and, and to be honest I'm learning as I go. I'm pretty new to this. I was sworn in in January in the Pentagon. So I'm only wow. a few months in, and the few months I've been in, of course, you know, the world went upside down with, with COVID and everything in the last month. So there's no better way to learn than just boots on the <laughs> ground and start running. I
0: was so. going to say, it's, it's a full-time gig, it sounds like, but now it's like 24-hour gig yeah. with, the, with the COVID. It's a,
2: it, it's a big, it's busy. It's been a lot, um, a lot of teleconferencing, like I'm sure a lot of people are doing right now in this environment, which for me is new because I, for the last 15 years, have been a stay-at-home mom where my, my work all day is chase kids, get kids to school, clean a house. I volunteer a lot with the PTA or different things, but I'm not used to having official teleconference calls or sign into the office or things like that. So that's something I'm learning to juggle and balance that. I know a lot of people right now are working from home and schooling their kids at home and trying to balance everything. So I'm right there with you and it's a voluntary position. Um, I say that not to say, hey, I'm working for free, but I joke with my daughter, I've had a habit of working for free for the past decade and a half. (laughs) Uh, PTAs for free, motherhoods for free, all of these things. Um, But it's just a way to serve our community, um, a way so people don't feel like tax dollars are being thrown at what I'm doing. It really is volunteer work. People like me throughout the country, there's over a hundred of us. And it really is just a love of our country and a gratitude to the army that keeps us safe, that compels us to want to try and connect those dots, connect the families in a certain area with the policy and everything that happens back East that can be so big and so cumbersome and it's easy to get lost. You know, it's an organization of a million. Where, where do you fit in? I don't know. I've never been a soldier, but I've been a soldier's wife. My kids are soldier's kids. And so I feel like we're able to maybe bring kind of a family touch to it. And And mostly we're just here to represent and make sure people feel connected, especially right now where it's easy to feel disconnected because we're distanced. Mm -hmm. And I've been really impressed with the Pentagon. Like I said, it's been busy with teleconferences and videos and things, but every single one of them have been focused on how do we help our soldiers? How do we help their families? How do we help them not feel so distanced? How, for example, do we make sure the Army Reserve guys who usually go to drill once a month, they might have their army weekend, they're not going to that battle assembly once a month, which means, are they getting paid? That, that takes your finances into a problematic area. And so the army's worked really hard to develop virtual training, um, individual opportunities to make sure they're still engaged and improving themselves as soldiers so that they can still be paid and have the finances that they depend on. So I've been impressed with how much the senior Army leadership is putting into taking care of what they call the force. I never knew this, so maybe some of your listeners don't know this, but they call their top priority the force, Um, Mm -hmm. the the protection of the force, health of the force. It's capital force, and that's just the Army. That's the soldiers. That's their guys. That's their families. So that's what we do.
0: Well, it's it's an absolute honor and privilege to have you on the podcast. As you just described, you're incredibly busy. So thank you for a few minutes. And I recently was talking with someone who – is, is full time military, but they refer to themselves as a pu- a pencil pusher. I was like, no, 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 no don't <laughs> don't be downgrading just because no. you're you're in an office somewhere does not make yeah. you any less of a of a soldier or a, a service member. And so, well, I'm glad you. you
2: I'm glad you pointed that out because we need every man and woman in those uniforms. You know, I I think I have a little bit different perspective than maybe some Americans, given that my husband's given his life for this country. But I know every man and every woman across this country and around the world, when they put that uniform on today, whether they're going to an office to push pencils or they're going out in combat, they've made an oath to die for me if it's required. And that's a serious oath. That's a really serious oath. And I feel like we as Americans have a huge debt of gratitude, not only to the ones who do die for us, but for the millions who are willing to die for us. That's a lot of men and women that dress in that camo, to say, I'd take a bullet for you today if I needed to. Like That's kind of big. That's a big deal. So you push that pencil and you push it well. Yeah. And you know that we as Americans are grateful that you're in that uniform pushing that pencil. Amen. Do it with pride.
0: Let's talk about you and Brent for a minute. How'd you meet? Thanks. What's your love story? Uh, what? And I understand you had a love of country in common. What else did you have in common?
2: Yeah. So um, we're both really old-fashioned. I think anybody who knew him or still knows me would definitely say that we met on a blind date, which is just terrible. Blind dates by nature are terrible. And so we were set up on a blind date while students at BYU. I had just returned from a mission down in Chile for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And anyone who's familiar with the culture around BYU knows people really like to get students married off. And so um, <laughs> he was 23 and not married. I was 23 and not married. You know, what a scandal. You're weirdos,
0: a, yeah, at that age yeah, and not totally.
2: married. We both served missions. We were both close to where to graduate and we got set up on a blind date. I kid you not. The guy who was a, a common friend said, Jenny, I've met your husband. He's the male version of you. <laughs> and I remember just thinking like, you should never marry your complete like same type of personality. That's just a bad idea. But I also thought this goofy kid was never going to pick my husband. So we, anyway, we did, we met on a blind date and The blind date itself was a disaster, but after that, he asked me out kind of for a real shot. And it sounds cliche, and you might think I'm making it up, but from the get-go, we talked about our shared love for this country. This was shortly after 9-11. I had just been out of the country and gotten back. I was majoring in teaching U.S. government and American history classes. He was at the time contemplating joining the military. So it was from the very beginning this commonality. I used to joke that I was the most patriotic person I knew until I met this kid. I'm like, wait a sec. So that drew us together, um, led to some really good opportunities to to serve our country. He ended up enlisting that summer while we were dating, and it was three days after he proposed to me. Wow. So when we talk about being an army family, even though I never put the boots on, like his military career was our commitment as a family. He had my support 100%. Uh, He deployed four times, and each one of those times, you know, it's kind of that gut-wrenching, oh my gosh, can we do this again? And yet we really only ever talked about it once, and that was before the first time, when we had one big, long, tearful heart-to-heart, weighing the pros and cons, weighing the risks. Is this really what we signed up for? At the time, we had just found out we were pregnant with our first baby, and he was about to deploy, and it kind of hit home all this great talk about how much we love America and this great, let's have a conversation, how we want to change the world really hit home when it came down to, you know, him going to war and now we've got a baby and then a couple babies and then four or five or six or seven. But once we had that one conversation early on, it was kind of like we've made that decision. We've made that decision. And so when future opportunities for him to serve came back up, we didn't, get into the depth of it. It was just more, where do you need to be? When do you need to go? Including the last, this last deployment, he sent me a text message from a meeting he was in before the first time we found out about this. And his text message simply said, Hey, when I get home, we need to talk. And I'd been married to him long enough and through enough of these episodes of things that I just texted him back. Where are you going? Mm. You know, and it was just, it was kind of a given that if the call to serve came, put me in boots. Let's go. And he knew that he went with my support and I know he wouldn't have gone without my support. So it wasn't like I was this doormat dragged along into it and he didn't care about me and he didn't care about the kids and he just, you know, wanted to go play soldier all day. He and I both knew it was a shared commitment, a shared oath. And now the interesting thing is in my position with the secretary of the army, I took that same oath that Brent took when he enlisted as a soldier. And that was a very emotional moment for me you know, barely over a year after my husband died serving our country, I raised my hand to the square and took the oath that I would protect this great nation as well and very different way, in a very different manner. My my life mission is very different from my husband's, but it's just taught me a lot that these common goals, these common dreams, these common principles Brent and I share live on. My patriotism didn't die when he died. His patriotism didn't die when he died, and that's given me... I would say a source of strength and resolve to just keep going and put one foot in front of the other and and at the same time step back and say okay it's our turn to serve in a different capacity but it's still the same the same great cause you know we're still committed to the same principles the same freedom liberty justice for all all the cliche things they really matter and they really mean something so that's what keeps us going
0: yeah, and uh, you, you mentioned when, when a soldier serves, the family serves, and, and it's Absolutely. so important. And so yeah. when, when whenever I'm anywhere and they ask for military personnel to stand, I wish I always wish ask for the whole family to stand because your yeah, husband like was deployed, that. but you were serve, You guys were serving along with him, yeah. though you weren't deployed. In my in my opinion,
2: yeah. No, I love that. And you know who I would say to have stand is have those kids stand have the little brothers and the little sisters or the sons and the daughters because that's what I've seen again I have you know my perspective has changed in the last year and a half it really has when I talk about who's really paying the price of freedom I don't so much think of Brent in laying down his life I think of my seven kids who gave their father I think of some neighbor kids I have in uh, in my community up here in North Ogden whose older brother was died in Afghanistan and and they miss him and they mourn for him I think of the youth of today who've been asked to bear this heavy price by sending someone they love into the harm's way for my freedom. And I you know, it, it it can go either way. It can either make you really depressed and really down and just really dark. Or I find it to be incredibly motivating. What in the world am I gonna do with this gift I've been given? This freedom, this life, this legacy that so many have willingly not just died themselves for, but sent a loved one to die for me man, I better up my game. You know what I mean? Like right. there are a lot of people who paid a pretty heavy price for me to be able to have my freedoms that I probably don't even think about until they're, you know, a little bit limited. Right now, I think the COVID situation gives us all an opportunity to maybe sit back and think about some of the little freedoms we take for granted. Like I don't know that I've ever been grateful to be able to just go to the grocery store whenever I want. Right. Or go to the park whenever I want or send my kids to school on a normal day. And some of those things have been restricted, not because we're being bombed, but because for the national health and welfare of our people, we've been asked to sacrifice a little bit. And and I feel like a lot of us are pushing back hard because we don't know what to do with that. Right. I've never been asked to give up my grocery list. I've never been asked to homeschool my own kids because it's maybe not safe to send them to a public school setting. I didn't live through World War II where, I mean they all knew what it was like to ration their butter. The ladies knew what it was like to not be able to buy nylons because the military needed the nylon. Women who had been working in the home knew what it was like to become Rosie the Riveter and keep the machinery going. But I do see in today's situation, as unprecedented as we keep calling it, the recurring theme of America's awesome. And we're gonna work together, our companies are gonna step up and make masks and make surgical gowns and make testing kits. And people like me are going to say, okay, I guess I won't go to the store every time I think of something I wish I had. And I'll keep my kids home and teach them around the kitchen table instead of the classroom. I think it gives us an opportunity to remember and reflect on these great freedoms that we probably do take for granted. I mean, I'll admit I do. All those things I just listed, I never once thought I might not be able to do that in April of 2020. You know? Yeah, that's crazy. But here I am. Here I am in the businesses that are are suffering because they can't be open or the workers who can't get their employment for the same reason. But I think it gives us a chance as a community to say, okay, generations and generations of Americans have faced hard things, awful things, horrible things, and they've banded together and triumphed over it, and now we can do it too. This is our turn to do the same thing.
0: I was gonna I had written down I was gonna ask you what would Brent be telling us at this time. Oh man and, But I think you just said oh, it.
2: Man. I think you
0: just said it, Jenny.
2: I can't I can't tell you how many times I thought, man, I wish this man were here. I could see him I could see him almost calling us on the carpet and I don't say that in a way to make it sound like I'm making light or trivial of the trials that we're facing right now. But anybody who ever knew Brent while serving as mayor knows for sure he never gave any kind of public speech without tying in either the founding fathers or a personal experience overseas. Every time, like we would kind of tease him about it. When I was in Iraq, when I was in Afghanistan. But it's because it drove it home for him. You know, he he lived in Afghanistan when they had elections where people risked their lives to dare show up at the ballot and cast a vote. He lived through that, whereas, you know, how many Americans are just too busy that first Tuesday of November to even show up and drop off their mail-in ballot?
0: Or I don't like the candidate or whatever, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure.
2: And so he, I know if he were here, that's what he would be saying is he would not diminish it at all because I think there's no need to diminish this. I don't think he would say, oh, this is nothing compared to every other generation. I think he would say, isn't this awesome that our generation now has a chance to shine? And our generation has a chance to stand on the shoulders of the giants who went before us. And one thing I've said several times in speeches that I think Brent would definitely say is, you know, we talk about the greatest generation of World War II. Well, we can't talk about their greatness as an excuse for our own weakness. We don't get to say, oh, those guys were so amazing and so awesome and so brave and so willing and so everything. And I'm just going to kind of sit here and complain on my couch, you know? Yeah. The greatness of America is the American spirit. And I know if Brent were here, that's what he would be saying, Um, guiding our our local community, our family, uh, his circle of influence. I know he'd be saying, okay, how do we help? Who do we help? How do we rise up? How do we face this challenge? And basically call upon that great, what's the American dream? What is the American dream? The American dream is not to be handed everything. I think sometimes in this generation, because life's been fairly smooth for quite a few years. I think a lot of people kind of, Hey, give me my, give me my American dream on a plate, please. Yeah. Well, You know what the American dream is? The American dream is working your tail off. The American dream is facing odds that smack in your face and saying, I'm going to rise above this. And the most beautiful part of the American dream is looking at a neighbor who might be down on their luck or a family member that's really struggling and saying, I'm not just going to chase my own dream, but I'm going to carry you with me. And I'm going to make sure your dream comes true too. And I know, I mean, that's, I look at Brent, we're talking about his headstone. We still haven't gotten the headstone in because the ground is frozen. And so we have to wait till the ground thaws. And on his headstone, I plan to put killed in action and the date of his death. And someone made a comment, oh, you shouldn't focus so much on the way he died. What matters most is the way he lives. And I said, I totally agree. You know how my husband lived? Killed in action. He lived in action. Not just in Afghanistan, he lived in action. And so for me, killed in action isn't just focusing on the bullet that took his life. It focuses on the fact that he gave his life for the American dream, not just for himself and not just for me and our seven kids. He gave his life so that even the people in Afghanistan, who aren't even American, could have a shot at the freedoms and the liberties and the justice that we just have known for generations. And, you know, maybe some of them won't ever get that, which is very sad. And I'm sure that, that's sad for him. But I know he knows he made a difference on the ones he met. Yeah. I know he knows he was able to impact someone somewhere and say, hey, I've got this great American way of life. And I'm going to put on this uniform and come over here and try to teach you how to have it among your own people. I can't give it to you. I can't. You cannot give away the American dream. It's yeah. not transferable. But maybe I can teach you how to chase it down and teach you how to work for it and teach you how to fight for it when necessary.
0: That's beautiful. Well said. Uh, we, we hear your kids. You got seven kids.
2: Yeah, no, uh, no, I no,
0: apologize. It's, it's awesome. <laughs>
2: this, this is home school. This is yeah. now church. This is now the playground. This is recess. <laughs> this is everything. The locker
0: room, here. on and on and on. Yeah. We're uh,
2: yep. the one room schoolhouse and we're just loving it. <laughs> we're doing great. <laughs> we're all just in our wheels.
0: But I was going I was going to ask uh, what is something that your husband passed on to your kids, both that annoys you and that you are <laughs> really really so grateful for that he passed on to them.
2: Oh, I can say one that for sure annoys them and that's uh, the importance of hard work. <laughs> you know, we joke we have what we call the mini farm. It's an acre and a half, which isn't really a ton of property, but we live surrounded by houses on quarter acre lots. We're right in a little subdivision. So We found this older home that had a couple lots around it, never subdivided, and he gardened it. He called it farming. We've got 41 fruit trees. We've got um, a couple, about third acre garden beds in the back of the house. And he would drag them out there to the chicken coop, and let's go plant, and let's go weed. And, And every time he would take them out there, it was always more than let's just grow something. It's let's learn how to work. And so I know that's something he's definitely left with us is this this importance to work hard. Again, find a dream, have a dream, but then you know what? you got to go get your dream. And you've got to work hard to make it come true. And I joke and say that's something that probably annoys them now because they're still kids. I think as they grow older, they'll look on it and say, wow, my dad definitely taught me that. Um, another thing I would say that sometimes annoys me is he had a great sense of humor and a great ability to reason with people. Like, I don't know if you're into Star Wars. Oh, sure. But these are not the droids you are looking for. (laughs) And he would have this ability, to, which worked really well for him in in a professional setting and in a conflict setting because he could calm down people who had really differing points of views. And then he wasn't manipulating them, and he wasn't appeasing one side or the other. But he had this ability to bring arguing tempers settle it down, find some common ground, and then move forward and, and find a resolution. Well, with the kids, it just means a few of my kids are very good at, Mom, these are not the droids you are looking for, or Mom, Dad would really want us to have a puppy, or Mom, Dad, this, this, you know, we, we joke, but, um, so my oldest daughter particularly, since she's been about three, we have said she'd be a fabulous attorney, just she can argue a case, she gets that from her father. And then their sense of humor. Sometimes when I'm stern and I'm upset and I want the kids to work and where's the discipline, and then one of them will just crack some super funny joke. And I don't know if you've ever had that moment as a parent where you're trying so hard not to laugh at the indignant child who's disobeying you, but so funny. And so I feel like that's something we've really inherited in our home in quite an abundance since he's died is his sense of humor again, not that he ever made light or trivial of things, but he knew how to take some of that intensity and just calm it down, which by nature, I'm a super intense worrier, like nailed it. And so that's been something I enjoy seeing in my kids where I'll be upset or worried or anxious. And one of them will just crack some super dumb joke and I want to slap him, But instead I just laugh and say, you know, thanks for the reminder. Thanks for the reminder to maybe not get so worried and mm. and not get so worked up. I think to a degree, that's why right now we're doing fairly well amid coronavirus and homeschool and everything else. I feel like our world's been upside down for a couple years now. You know, when Brent first left, our house was flooded and we had to live in a rental for a while and got the entire place. So that was pretty stressful with a newborn and everything. So it kind of feels like, when you face something really hard and tragic and unexpected, it can either completely destroy you, or I feel like for us, it's made us a little more resilient. And I, particularly, like I said, I am a warrior. I am, by nature, a very anxious person. It's helped me take a deep breath and say, okay, well, really, this is probably going to be okay. And I guess we can handle doing homeschool in the kitchen around the Thank table you. one more day. And then just the ability to sometimes walk away from the worry. Yeah. And just say, No, well, I can I can worry about this in a little while. Like there's no need to let the stress take over and and just breathe. So those are a few things I know we've inherited from him. Working hard and knowing when to maybe take it easy a little bit.
0: I, I don't wanna be selfish uh, of your time. I could sit here for for hours and, and talk to you. You're, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not a precise person. person. What's that? <laughs>
2: I'm not much of a concise person. I'm kind
0: of a talker. So that's great. It's it's perfect for a podcast. That's what we need. That's what we need here. But I did have just a couple questions left. Um, I mentioned before we started recording that I was nervous to talk to you. Uh, (laughs) I I think you've, you've become your family has become, and your husband obviously was and is such a, a beacon of hope and light and strength that you become kind of like this superhero, uh, cartoon, comic strip book, uh, uh, comic book character to all of us. And I think a lot of us who don't have a personal taste of the ultimate sacrifice paid like your family has, I think all of us, we have this tendency to look at people in your situation and wonder how do we approach them? How do we talk to them that doesn't where it doesn't come off rude or ignorant or inappropriate? And yet we don't want to bring you guys, bring anyone down uh, you know, around the death of a loved one. Answer that for me. How do we handle uh, a civilian who has lost a soldier uh, in action?
2: Well, you know, first I'll give the disclaimer that, A, we're not superheroes. I promise we are more normal than any normal American family you've ever met. Just come over and and check it out. Um, (laughs) But second, I also, you know, I'll answer how I would say, but maybe a different family might say it differently. I'm not claiming I know how all people react. But one thing that I would say is very important for people to keep in mind if you're not sure how to talk to someone who's lost someone, whether in the military or cancer or a car accident or something else, you don't have to worry that bringing up my lost loved one is going to remind me that I lost them. Like, let me just let you know, I'm always aware that Brent's dead. You're not going to hurt my feelings by bringing that up. You're not going to suddenly remind me like, oh, oh my gosh, I forgot my husband was dead until you asked me how I'm doing since my husband died. So I would say, and again, I hope people don't think that I'm taking this lightly, but I'm just trying to make the point that if you're not sure what to say, I would encourage you to say something. I think sometimes the most awkward moments are when I'm with someone or see someone, and I can almost tell they want to say something, and they don't know what to say, so then they say nothing, and it's this giant elephant in the room. Guess what? I know my husband died. You know my husband died. I know you know how my husband died. So to pretend it never happened, it's just silly and a lot of energy that's just wasted. One thing I would say about grief that I have learned is it's very physically exhausting. I find myself without a lot of spare energy, without a lot of spare emotional capital. I don't have time to play games. Um, That's where politics gets tricky because I've kind of found myself unexpectedly thrown into a very political world by virtue of my husband's political career. Right. And sometimes I just want to wash my hands of it and run away because I, I still feel like my emotions are so fragile and everything feels so personal. But if I ran into you in the grocery store or, you know, at church somewhere down the road when the world opens back up and you asked, how are you guys doing? Or tell me something about Brent. You're not going to make me sad You're not going to remind me that he's gone. You're going to let me know that you remember, for one, that Brent ever even was, and for two, that I'm probably still grieving him. And for you to ask how we're doing, you know, you don't have to fix this. I think that's something I would tell people about grief and and hardship in general, even with the coronavirus. Your job, if I'm having a hard time, is not to try to fix this, because you can't fix this, whatever this is but what you can do is you could maybe help me face it. So if you, if you know someone that, you, that has lost a loved one, uh, particularly if it is a military family and you don't know how to thank them or approach them on their sacrifice, just keep in mind you don't have to fix it. You just can help them face it. And anyone who's lost a loved one, their favorite topic to talk about is that loved one. <laughs> like, you want to talk to me about Brent? Oh my gosh, we'll stay here all day. I could tell you everything about everything about everything about Brent because that lets me know that you know I still love him I still miss him he's still very much alive in our family even though his physical life has been given for our country so I would say if you don't know what to say say something and then the other thing I would say is don't be afraid if I do get emotional maybe if I talk to you if I start to tear up or even if I burst into sobs and just cry and cry and cry that's okay that's okay
0: What if I get emotional and cry? Is that okay as well? You get
2: emotional with me. I'm probably going to give you a big hug and say, I'll just cry with you. Yeah. Because you know what that means is you feel something that I feel. And in that moment, there's a magical connection letting me know I'm not alone. And there've been times when I've been with someone who they're the ones weeping over Brent and I'm having a really good day and I'm able to comfort them in their grief. And that's physically rejuvenating to me to feel like, you know what? I maybe helped you know that I know what it's like that you miss Brent or someone else, yeah. and instead of me constantly being the one needing help or constantly being the one that's down, you've let me, you've lifted me by sharing your vulnerability with me. I mean that's just empowering. I think sometimes we want to fix everything, we want to be strong, we're afraid of emotion. I would say the greatest strength I have found is letting myself feel weak. When I feel weak, I feel weak. Like Easter, perfect example, not too many days ago. Beautiful day, wonderful day. I'm Christian. I believe in the hope and the light that Easter embodies. My kids had a great time hunting for eggs and eating a lot of candy. Um, We had a local restaurant owner bring us a beautiful dinner. It was a beautiful day. Beautiful, wonderful, lovely, hopeful Sunday. And then at the end of the day, I sat on my bed and cried for about an hour. And just cried. And just cried and cried. And then I got off my bed and stopped crying and and went and played with my kids. And I think that's important to realize. I can be okay and be absolutely devastated. I can be a super strong, optimistic patriot and be heartbroken that my husband gave his life. Like It's not either or. So if you come up to me and say, Jenny, I'm so sorry that you've lost Brent or how are you doing without Brent here? And if I get emotional or you get emotional or we both get emotional, that's okay. You haven't you haven't ruined my day. You probably made my day. And even if I leave that encounter emotionally drained and sad and crying, I will leave that encounter going, Hey, but that guy cares too. I'm not alone. So say something. Don't be afraid of the emotion, your emotion or their emotion. And remember, you don't have to fix it because you can't fix it. So stop oh trying advice. to fix everything. That's
0: <laughs> what my wife <laughs> always tells me. Yeah, I got to learn I know. that.
2: <laughs> you don't need to fix it. We just have to somehow face it. It's the same thing. I don't need to move on. I just need to keep moving forward. So don't confuse those. I can I can face this without fixing it, and I can move forward without moving on as if it never happened.
0: Yeah. Finally, uh it's not too late for you to enter the presidential race, Jenny, would you huh. please
2: politics Oh didn't I, I just tell I, you I know, but that's why I want serious? that's why
0: I want you running That's why I would <laughs> yeah. want Brent running is it's you're you're out of the game you're you're real people
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, no we are we are super real people. I will tell you just this morning, I found myself you know cleaning up and things going through the morning tasks of the day thinking, man, I really enjoyed being married to someone involved in politics more than being the one finding myself kind of involved in politics. So I, I'll at least wait a few years. I, I got to get a little bit more of a political backbone. I got to stop taking everything so personal. I'm just being super candid with you. I, I love politics. I love the political process. I view my husband as a statesman, not a career politician, but a true, true patriot and a statesman. And I think there's a lot of good that needs to be done in that arena, but I'll tell you, man, ooh, I've nowhere near ready. Uh-uh. I, yeah. Emotionally, I can't I can't face that. But but if I can maybe inspire a few people to consider their own patriotism, if I can help raise this next generation of patriots, you know, maybe one of my kids will go run for the office Brent didn't live long enough to run for. Or maybe they'll, uh, you know, deploy someday and put that uniform on. I can think of nothing that would make me prouder than to say, I'm the middleman. I'll help keep the message and the legacy alive. And then, uh, inspire them and and others to hopefully put on those boots or put on that tie or that dress and say, I'll lead. I'll lead on the battlefront. I'll lead on the political front. I'll lead my family. Where do you want me to lead? That's what I'm here to do.
0: Thank you so much for spending time with us. I know I've taken a lot of it. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for sharing your husband with us and this country. And yeah, I look forward to voting for you or one of your kids one day.
2: (laughs) We'll go for the kids. How about thanks Austin.
0: Thanks. (laughs)
2: All right. Have a okay. good
0: one. See you later. You later. Bye. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing else to say there, Jenny. I mean, you got. I hope you listened to that with a notepad and pen or had your iPhone out or whatever and are making taking notes. If not, go back and re listen to it because Jenny had a, a, some amazing nuggets of truth and uh, inspiration there, uh, obviously sharing uh, her husband's story and life with us and legacy and uh, so grateful for, for all of that and for them. And uh, I can't wait myself to go back and listen through there and write some of those things down. Uh, we, can, uh, we can do hard things. They're, the Taylor family is doing hard things every day. And every military family in the world is doing hard things every day. So we can do hard things every day. And we can do hard things together. That's going to do it for a Military Monday edition of the EP Podcast. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Each and every one of you, I do appreciate it. You can get us anywhere you find your podcasts. You can uh, Google it. You can iTunes it or Apple, whatever they they do. You Spotify, SoundCloud. You can find us anywhere. iTunes. Or uh, tune in, uh, iHeart, we're everywhere. Get us online, 1280 slash EP podcast. Get us on the Zone Sports Network app in the on demand audio section. We are, uh, get us on Facebook. Go to our Facebook page. Give us a like and a follow, the EP Podcast Facebook page. And of course, you can follow me and interact with me on Twitter any day, any hour of the week at austin horton and i would love to hear from you send me an email austin.horton at 1280 the thanks for tuning in we'll see you on a top 10 tuesday right here on the ep podcast our thanks once again to jenny taylor her seven kids and major brent taylor for the life and legacy they've given to us all at past present and future and until tomorrow as always be good to each other Now for the laugh of the day. (laughs) I had the
1: pleasure of growing up in America before the lawyers took it over and ruined it on us. Yeah. In my day, if a kid fell off the monkey bars and chipped a bone in his arm, that was tragic, but it was funny to the rest of us. (laughs) Certainly wasn't reasons to take the monkey bars off the playgrounds. We all did dumb things. That's how you learn not to do dumb things. C.S. Lewis said suffering was God's megaphone. That's right. You do dumb things, it hurts, and then you learn not to do it. But one of the most painted verses. I'll give you an example. When I was 12, someone told me to get a ball jar, a canning jar, find some dry ice, put it in the jar, put the lid on it. So I said, what's going to happen? They said, it's going to blow up. And I said, cool. <laughs> Where do I get dry ice at? And they said, the ice cream man. So one day I heard the ice cream man coming down my street. I run out with one of my mother's canning jars, and I ask, you got any dry ice? He said, what you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to put it in this jar, I'm going to put the lid on it, and it's going to explode. <laughs> ice cream man says, oh, here's your dry ice. <laughs> The America I grew up in. Yes. And of course, that night my mother was at our kitchen table picking shards of glass out of my forehead. And my father came walking in. How that happened? Someone told me you put rice in a ball jar, it'll it'll blow up. So knowing that, you were just staring at that jar, waiting for it to blow right up in your face. Yep. What am I raising, a moron? (laughs) I could see why you'd think that. I never did it again because that had been really dumb. That's how you learn. My nephew's coming by. This poor kid's 11 years old. I look at him. Where's he going? My sister said rollerblading. I thought he was going to disarm a nuclear device. Poor kid looked like the Michelin man. Foam, rubber, plastic everywhere. She says, I don't want him to get hurt. I said, hurt? He could take a semi at 80 miles an hour in that house. Falling on concrete is supposed to hurt. (laughs) See, that's your incentive to learn to stay upright on the rollerblades. (laughs) They've ruined everything. Playgrounds. I took my granddaughter to a playground. What happened to playgrounds? The slide is five feet high, made out of plastic... She would go four inches and stop, four inches and stop, four inches and stop. That's not a slide. It's a scoot. Wee papa, wee papa, wee papa, wee papa. What did we have? We had a six-story high solid steel structure. About mid-July, yeah. Mid-July would hit a temperature of about 285 degrees. You lose two layers of skin on the way down. Another layer when you hit the ground like a flat rock on a pond. (laughs) come back picking gravel out of your thighs. Yeah! (laughs) Now it's wee papa, wee papa, wee papa. I wanted to shove her down the slide. I did. I wanted to shove her so she'd know what an exhilarating feeling of sliding. And I felt six iPhones on my back. Go ahead, old man. (laughs) We dare (laughs) you. It's nuts. Car seats? I'm not against car seats. I'm just telling you, I'm tired of strapping my granddaughter in like a NASCAR driver to drive two miles to get a Diet Coke from the Mini She's 54 pounds. I'm going to get a hernia hauling her in and out of the seat. What age can you take them out now? 5, 7, 18? Here's your high school diploma. You get to ride home like a big boy today. I mean, come on. Car seats? We do not even have seat belts. I walked the back seat of my mother's car for four years she'd be driving I'd just be walking the back seat side to side sure every now and then she'd hit the brakes I'd fly up into the front she'd toss me back like a trout what are you doing up here get back there I got pulled over by the police. I'm not making this up. I got pulled over by the police because it was sunny day and my granddaughter was in the back seat with sunshine through the window and the policeman said, I'm not gonna write you up this time, but you need to have a sunshade to protect her from the sun. I go, what? Are you kidding? I almost got arrested. I said, are you you're kidding me? This is a joke, right? When did the sunshine become this evil thing? We didn't have sunscreen. You know what sunscreen was when I was a kid? Dirt, that's what it was, dirt. And why? Because we would eat dirt and it would get all over our face and protect us from the sun. And then we'd wash it down with water from a garden hose. And then I'd take a bath, put on my asbestos pajamas and go to bed. And look how I turned out.